I'm Eric D'Souza, and you are listening to Crime Writers of Canada's podcast, where we discuss all things crime fictions with authors from coast to coast. Uh, joining us today is actually somebody from the heart, <laughs> the middle of uh, Canada, from Winnipeg. We're uh, bringing our second episode of season two with uh, Marjorie or M.M. DeLuca. How are you today? I'm great. And it's great to be on your podcast, Eric. Nice to meet you. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to meet you too. Uh, you were kind enough to send me your book uh, a couple of weeks back and I I uh, have to read everybody's book quickly. So I only get about halfway through, but I'm immensely enjoying The Night Side. There's so many layers to this book. Uh, it reminds me of a classic novel and I'm enjoying it a lot. So uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Right. Glad you're enjoying it. Um, so a little bit more about Marjorie. Uh, she spent her childhood in Durham City, England. After studying at the University of London, Goldsmiths College, she moved to Winnipeg, Canada, where she worked as a teacher, then a freelance writer. She studied advanced creative writing with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dr. Carol Shields. Marjorie loves writing for all ages and in many genres, suspense, historical, sci-fi for teens. She's also a screenwriter with several pilot projects in progress. Her newest novel, The Night Side, was published on December 5th, so just about a month ago, 2023, by Severn House, a division of Cannon Gate Books. Uh, so as we said in your bio, you've written several other genres before settling uh, and sticking with, sounds like, crime fiction. So I'm happy you found your way, but what took <laughs> yeah. you so long to get here? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I guess I started writing when I was teaching, and uh, I was teaching... Um, grade 10 to 12. And at the time, uh, I got really into writing. Um, that uh, dystopian series, The Hunger Games, came out, and the kids just loved that book. It was uh, something that just switched them on to reading. And as I was reading it, I thought, well, I can do something like this. I can write a book like this. And uh, I got some ideas together. And uh out of all that came a book called The Forevers, um, which is uh, it's aimed at young adults. And I went on to write the other two in that series, The um, Parasites and The Feeders. And uh, it's basically about um, what if you could engineer um, and create human beings that only aged to the age of 19 and stayed that way forever, and you could basically harvest um their blood and the and plasma and send it to people on the outside who want to reverse the aging process. And uh, it, it basically asks the question, would you want to reverse your age and would you want to live forever? And uh, I tried to get that book published by on the traditional route and was unsuccessful. So I self-published it. Um, I think that was around 2013. And it did okay. It got quite a lot of attention. Um, I didn't write any more sci-fi after that. I went on to write um, a young adult suspense. And then a saga based on my mother's experiences um, growing up in northeastern England in a coal mining town. And that one actually got quite a lot of, um, sold quite a lot of book, the, books, The Pitman's Daughter. Um but I still wasn't happy. I was kind of getting bored with that uh, genre. And that's when I 
um, came up with the book that later became The Savage Instinct, and it's a historical suspense. I really like history. I'm a history nut, really. And uh, I was visiting my old hometown in Durham, and I discovered that just around the corner from where my grandmother had lived in a mining town in Durham, um, a, a prolific serial murder had lived or had actually been born. And that was Marianne Cotton, who was arrested and convicted in 1873 and was actually hanged at Durham Prison. And I discovered she was born just around the corner from my grandmother's house, and I had to look into her. And uh, I found that hers was the first trial that had been basically by public opinion, by media, um, there were so many stories in the newspapers of the time, and she didn't really have any legal representation. So I wrote this book, The Savage Instinct. I created a, a character, a childless woman, who becomes fascinated by a child murderer and visits her in prison. And that's where The Savage Instinct came from. Um, it eventually got picked up by a U.S. publisher, an independent publisher, and it got great critical reviews. I got a starred review on Publishers Weekly, so I was amazed. I, I couldn't believe it. And the book got a great critical review, uh, got great critical um, reviews. Um, after that, I was kind of hooked on suspense and mystery. And around that time, I uh, pitched um, on something that was happening at Twitter at the time called Pitmad. I don't know whether you've heard of that, where writers pitch um, a log line of their book and if and editors and agents were watching and if the edit, an editor or an agent liked your pitch, you sent them a full manuscript. So I pitched a book which later became The Secret Sister and an editor from the UK liked it. I sent it to her. And next thing I had a two-book deal with, <laughs> with that publisher. And those became two domestic suspense or psychological thrillers, whatever you want to call them, uh, The Secret Sister and The Perfect Family Man. And both did better than I expected. Um, and I was just really hooked by the genre by then and went on to write The Night Side. It's a fabulous journey, and uh, yeah. I'm just, so I'm taking you started relatively late or yes. later in your life uh, to actually writing. But um, you can tell me if this is not true, but I often find that teachers make great writers. Not all teachers, but a yeah. lot of good writers <laughs> come from teachers. Yeah, and when I was teaching, um, I wasn't able to put as much um, time into writing because teaching requires so much headspace that you just can't put the time that you need into writing. But when I was teaching, one of the things I always did was whenever I um, gave the students an assignment, I always did it because I'm of the belief that you shouldn't assign something that you haven't tried yourself. Otherwise, how do you know how to write it? You can't just say to a kid, oh, write a short story or write a personal essay. There's a whole process goes into that, that starts with coming up with an idea. So how do you come up with an idea? It's a whole process. And uh, so teaching that 
I taught it and learned it by doing it. And I think that translates to the students who really understood then that it's a process. And you don't just go in and knock up, uh, out a short story. It takes a long time to come up with it, to draft it and polish it and publish yeah. it. <laughs> I agreed. Um, well, while I was reading The Night Side, I came up with sort of three things that struck me. Uh, and I'm not taking a chance because I already asked if this was correct or not. But the three <laughs> things that I've noticed while reading it is setting seems to be a very important uh, factor in your storytelling. Uh, you definitely enjoy doing your research uh, and you're a fan, or I'm guessing you were a fan of classic Gothic novels. So I want to talk about those three things and let's okay. start with setting. A lot of Canadian authors uh, put their books in Canada and, it, and it's a very important factor for them for their story to be set in Canada. Mm-hmm. I know some of your previous work has been in, in Winnipeg, um, but this one, you said it's somewhere different and it, it sort of does take a life of its own and not too many people write about Montana, but can you tell me why you chose that location and why it's so important? Uh, yeah, it's interesting uh, that that, uh, that I chose Montana. I wanted a place that was sparsely populated, uh, that had small pockets of, uh, you know, small towns. And I wanted a place that was a little bit like Winnipeg in terms of the small town. Feel, when, I mean, Winnipeg and Manitoba. Um in terms of small towns kind of dotted around the countryside. Um, but I also wanted a place with a varied landscape. And I've spent quite a lot of time uh, in Montana, either driving through it or visiting, um, you know, the Glacier Park. And uh, I've been there quite a lot. And it really struck me, the kind of incredible majesty of the scenery. It's It's amazing. Um, and I wanted that variety of scenery. Um, I'd also spent some time a couple of years back in southern Saskatchewan. And I just, that whole area on the border of Saskatchewan and Montana just had some kind of emotional impact on me. There were these sort of rolling hills. And uh, it was like we went to visit a friend's um family's graveyard his family had come from southern Saskatchewan and there we were in this graveyard with a white picket fence around it and I thought I was in a western it was the the strangest kind of sensation but the sort of deserted but rolling kind of scenery I just found it incredible and uh I just picked Montana I don't (laughs) um you know I've set I, I've only actually set one, no, two novels in Winnipeg, um, but uh, I need, I always need to feel an emotional connection with the setting before I use it. Otherwise, it just doesn't work for me. Um, and somehow I got that emotional connection when I was in southern Saskatchewan and crossing over into Montana. I always feel that kind of little thrill, which I have to have before I can set a book in a particular place. Otherwise, it's dead to me. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it comes across, uh, as I was saying, like I, I definitely got the impression that the, that the setting was so important. So because you had that emotional connection, I think it transferred over to the, to the mm. reader experience. And it's all about the reader experience. So uh, yeah. kudos on that one, because sometimes <laughs> I, uh, I roll my eyes when people go on too long about setting. And you don't, but you, yeah. the feel of it 
is just etched in every word and it's it's fantastic um another thing that makes me roll my eyes sometimes uh is when you start or any author starts a book with a dream and i was like uh oh <laughs> but <laughs> as i was reading the dream and as i was reading the story um you, you get this feel that the, the dream is I don't want to say more than a dream, but it was more than just foreshadowing. Um, there's an issue or a gothic feel to both the dream and then the reaction that um, Ruby has to the dream. Um, mm -hmm. That just gave it the classic gothic feel. That, like I said before, it sort of reminded me of Rebecca a little bit. Mm -hmm. of, is there a supernatural here or not? And that gives it, the reader sort of an uneasiness. So how mm -hmm. did you come across uh, <clears throat> like writing your story in this way? Because I don't think your other works had that. Uh, no, and actually you mentioned Rebecca, and that's one of my favorite openings, that last night I dreamed of Mandalay. I just think it's incredible, uh, and I can't deny that I might have had that in mind <laughs> when I wrote the opening to the night side, but I felt it was very important to have something really powerful from Ruby's childhood in the opening, and this dream, which is it is a dream, but it's almost more like a memory of um, the seances that her mother uh, would subject her to um, was very important because uh, this book is all about psychic power and is it fake or is it real, uh, specifically in terms of Ruby. Um, and I just felt it was really important to have that at the opening to get that kind of scary feel. Is this real? Are these spirits real? Because Ruby spent her childhood questioning that and uh, it never leaves her. And that's why I thought it was important to have that dream at the beginning. Uh, it's a dream in two parts and part of it is more like a premonition. Um, so yes, it's a dream sequence, but more than that, it's a memory and a premonition which I felt was very important to the story. Talking about the spiritual, um, I get the feeling you did your research. <laughs> yes. Actually, one of the inspiration for um, the book was an article that I read about psychic scammers and uh, a detective who uh, makes it his business to basically travel around and root out people who are running these scams. Um, because this is a story about, Ruby's mother, who is a scammer, uh, or becomes a scammer. And uh, it's fascinating how these people sort of prey on uh, vulnerable people and basically are experts at rooting out the needy people, the damaged people, the vulnerable people, and basically take them for everything they've got. And the research uh, sort of showed that during COVID, this became even more prevalent. And uh, these scammers will find out people who are, you know, lonely or um, grief stricken, and they'll basically prey on that and get them to engage in all these kinds of cures and curse removals and all kinds of spiritual treatments that start off being free and then escalate into costing lots of money. And uh, I did a lot of research on that. And uh, that was one of the things that inspired me to write the book. Because one of the 
um, scammers that I read about had a teenage daughter who she used to basically lure in customers and she'd tell her daughter, you do the initial reading, but kind of come across a bit amateurish and uh, then I'll swoop in and take over once you've kind of, once they're getting a bit frustrated with you. Um, but you put them at ease because you're not, you know, a real, you don't come across as a real scam artist, then I'll come in and take over. So I kind of started thinking about that teenage girl and what kind of life she'd had and uh, how, you know, how she felt about being involved in a business like this. And uh, that's what where the character of Ruby came from. Uh, another aspect that I find interesting, because we, we call them scammers, but Ida, the mom, in no way, I don't think, sees herself as a scammer. Uh, no. She has a very high opinion of herself. And I think, uh, you know, she truly believes she's doing good. Um, so it's a very complex character. But am I right? Like, does, does Ida not see herself as a scammer? Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of times, and I think this was true historically, that um, it was right in the Victorian era, it was mainly women who were doing this, not exclusively, but many women did this as the only way to make money. This was the one way that they could have some power and some agency um, in kind of steering the direction of their life. And I think initially Ida says, this is my way to make money. It's always been women that have done this. We have the power. Um, and then as it gets sort of more and more kind of criminal, if you want to say, she rationalizes it by saying, I'm just giving them what they want. This is people are asking for this. They're asking me to conjure up their dead child. They're asking me to get rid of the curse. They're asking me to find love for them. And basically, people who in, are involved with this rationalize it by saying, if people weren't asking for this, I wouldn't be doing it. And that's what Ida does. She sees herself as the person who's providing a service that these people need and sometimes is the only person that will listen to them because the world has basically shoved them aside. Well, it's, it's fascinating. And as I said, I'm, I'm only maybe about halfway through and I'm going to continue reading it after we yeah. say goodbye. So <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure talking with you today and uh, we're glad you came on the show. Yes, I'm glad to be on the show. It's the first podcast I've done in Canada. So it's great.